Welcome to Environmentality, a podcast for current environmental news, lectures, and interviews with the experts. I'm your host, Brendan Anthony. Let's dive on in. Woo! Welcome back to the show. I love that intro song. <laughs> um, welcome back, guys. Today I'm going to be kicking off the lecture series portion of the podcast, and I'm going to be talking to you guys today about climate change. I wanted to talk about pieces of evidence for climate change, as well as potential solution strategies to help mitigate its impact on the environment. So I thought I would first start off just talking about the quick distinction between global warming and climate change. Global warming is a symptom of climate change. We're seeing the warming of our air and ocean temperatures. However, these are just fragments and not the whole story of climate change. And I think so often you can have a fluke weather event and people are so quickly to say, oh, because we have snow now at this time of the year, global warming is happening. When in reality, in that context, they're talking about weather and weather is a short term event in a localized area. Whereas when we talk about climate, we're talking about a long term, on average, over a large region, year over year over year. We're taking into consideration like the average temperature and precipitation, wind, humidity, etc. Right? These are bigger picture parameters, and we're not just looking at short-term weather events. The reality is, is that some of these extreme weather events are actually also a symptom of climate change. We are seeing an increasing amount and in frequency of monsoons, hurricanes, flooding, droughts, snowstorms, heat waves, right? These are all extreme weather events, and they are a, another symptom of climate change. So it's really important that when we talk about climate change, when we talk about the climate, we're not extrapolating from short-term weather event patterns, but looking at how the average is changing over time. And what we are seeing is an increase of temperature, in both our air and in our oceans. And as we just heard about in the news briefing uh, this week is that, again, the air temperatures are reaching excessive and high levels in the Arctic Circle, never been recorded in our recent history. So the planet is warming, but that's not the whole picture. The other aspects that are involved of climate change include, like I said, the warming of the oceans, the warming of the air, but also the acidification of the oceans, the sea level rising, and again, the extreme weather event patterns, as well as melting ice sheets and glaciers. So these are the six pieces of evidence for climate change, and these are things that are happening today. So the question is, why are these things happening? And by and large, the common denominator is that there's too much carbon in our atmosphere. Typical, normal, healthy conditions of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere is about 300 to 350 parts per million. Present day, we are at above 400, and we have escalated from 300 to 400 in just the past 60, 70 years. So this brings us to the first part of why climate change is happening so drastically in our lifetime. The rate of carbon emissions that is influxing into the atmosphere is rising at an exceptional exponential rate, the likes of which are unprecedented. The other component about climate change today is that when we look at carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere over time, looking at ice cores, 
we see periods of warming, periods of cooling, periods of more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and periods of less. And it goes very cyclical. That is to say, climate change is not a new phenomena. However, the context of the climate change that we are experiencing today is new, different, and unprecedented. Again, both in the rate, but also in the trajectory. Because if we look at history, we could see that we are actually supposed to be heading towards a period of cooling, towards an ice age. In other words, a period of time with decreased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But the reality is, is that we are heading in the opposite direction, more carbon, more heat, and again, at a very alarming rate. These two pieces of evidence, when we look at carbon in our atmosphere, the rate of increase and the directionality of that increase tells us that what is happening today is unique and an issue. The reason why is because these carbon-based gases, things like carbon dioxide, methane, etc., create a greenhouse effect on the planet. It's like you have a wool sweater all around your body and you start adding more wool and more cotton and more materials into that sweater and it's going to get a lot warmer. In the same way, we are adding more insulation into our atmosphere and as the sun radiates heat into the planet, it is then being trapped and bouncing back and forth between the planet and the atmosphere and rising the air temperatures and of course also elevating the temperatures of our oceans. The question then becomes, why is this a bad thing? Well, humans, uh, much like most animals, don't really like living in extreme heat. And as temperatures go up, we see increased aggravations, we see increased violence, and we start to lose parts of the planet that are habitable, not just for us, but for a lot of animals, for migration patterns that are shifting, Flowers and plants are blooming differently, which are supposed to be timed with these migrations. And so now food availability for animals is being disrupted. We have a very fine-tuned system. And as we elevate even just a few degrees, it has tremendous impacts on the life on the planet. If you consider your body temperature, right, 98.6 Fahrenheit, that's where you want to be. If you start shifting that even a few degrees above or below, you start to get in a really grave situation, right? Even if you elevate two degrees, three degrees, four degrees, you start running a fever and you can get really sick and even die. In the same way, the planet is a fine-tuned system. And if we just change it, even just the slightest amount, we start to have vast ramifications for life on the planet. So this is an issue for all of us, not just the animals, not just for the ocean inhabitants, but also for us as well. So let me just go briefly through these symptoms their impacts, and then I'll get into the solutions. The first is, again, the air temperature and the ocean temperatures are rising. Why is this an issue? Well, as we saw again in the news briefing, increased air temperatures now starts to melt permafrost, which is, again, permanently frozen land that traps greenhouse gases within. And as that melts, those greenhouse gases go into the atmosphere, which only makes it hotter, which now starts to, again, accelerate a lot of other issues, like the melting ice caps and glaciers. Why is this an issue? Well, because if we start to now melt off the white reflective surface on the planet, our albedo, our color of the planet starts to become darker and we now start to reflect less heat into the atmosphere. That is to say, we start absorbing more heat, which then escalates and again, increases the temperature of the planet, but again, also the oceans. As a result, 
more glaciers, more ice starts to melt. And this becomes an issue because these are massive volumes of water. And as they start to be inputted into the ocean, moving from a frozen state to a liquid state, the sea level begins to rise. And coastal cities now start to be encroached with water. We now start losing our beachfront real estate. But more than that, there are islands that are only sitting a few inches to a few feet above the sea level. And again, minor tweaks have ramifications that are so vast and so dire, especially for people who are living in a lower income country just above the sea level, and they now start to lose their home. And you are now starting to see environmental refugees where inhabitants in South Pacific islands are now escaping the rising sea level to go live in New Zealand. And now you have cultural issues, immigration issues as a result. And so these environmental issues are not just environmental in nature, but they have socioeconomic issues as well. What we're also starting to notice is that with all that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the ocean actually starts to absorb a lot of it. And if it were not for the oceans, we probably would not be able to live on this planet because the ocean is such a vast sink for heat retention, but also for carbon dioxide drawdown. And as a result, what's happening is that the water, H2O, is binding with carbon dioxide, CO2, and creating carbonic acid, the same type of carbonation that's found in your soda, okay? And the issue is that you have this carbonic acid in the ocean, and it's raising the acidity or raising, or excuse me, lowering the pH of the ocean. And as a result, now animals can't live in a particular region of the ocean because you have very acidic areas, the temperature is too warm, and now the oceans are starting to get thrown off and we're starting to see the collapse of whole entire ecosystems like coral reefs. Coral reefs require a very fine-tuned temperature range and acidity range. With increased acidity, the corals actually start to dissolve. In the same way, if you drink too much soda, your teeth begin to rot and get cavities the corals are made of a similar calcium carbonate structure, and they now begin to dissolve with the increased acidity of the ocean. Additionally, the increased temperatures in the ocean also make it inconducive for the photosynthetic algae that lives within the coral, the species that actually gives the coral energy because it photosynthesizes, is now leaving the coral because it's too hot. And like most plants, they need a particular temperature range, and if it gets too hot, they eject and they eject from the coral, and this is known as coral bleaching. And when the algae ejects from the coral, it only has a few more days to basically survive because it's no longer getting nutrition and food from the algae, right? So this is an example of mutualistic symbiosis, where two organisms live together in harmony. The coral provides the house, the algae provides the food. And when the algae leaves, no more food for the coral, the coral dies. And the real big issue with this is that the coral reef is such a beautiful ecosystem that provides breeding grounds and birthing grounds for so many aquatic species. And so not only does our food system start to collapse, but also the beauty of the ocean. The beauty that draws tourism to very beautiful, amazing places like Hawaii or the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. And now again, you're seeing economic impacts of climate change. And so we're starting to see that climate change, again, is not just an environmental issue, but a social and economic one as well. And so I think I'm going to go ahead and stop there in terms of the, the, the depressing stuff. But again, just to reiterate, the six pieces of evidence we have for climate change happening today are global temperatures are rising, especially in the air and in the ocean, melting ice caps and glaciers, ocean acidification, sea level rise, and extreme 
weather events. So I hope you can now see both the interconnectedness of the issues, but also the grave impact they are having on the world around us. So now let's switch gears. I want to now focus on good things, potential positive solutions to these issues. Here are my seven solution categories. The first three are more surrounding potential sectors like the economy, energy, and transportation sectors. And then the last four are more personal daily lifestyle choices. And I'm going to get into each of them, but I'll just highlight them here now. It's eating locally, eating less meat, supporting sustainable agriculture, and having fewer offspring. Let's jump into the first, the economy. One of the most beautiful and I think excellent ways for the economy to be leveraged to help try and draw down carbon is to institute a cap and trade program. A cap and trade program places a cap or a regulation on how much carbon a particular company can emit into the atmosphere. And if they go above that cap, they are then fined. And that money can then be used as incentive to pay other companies that have not emitted their total allotment. In other words, if companies don't emit as much, there is a financial incentive for them to now be rewarded with the fined penalty money from another company that has gone above the regulation. And so in that way, they're trading their carbon credits. And so by the end of the day, hopefully it's all balanced out at a certain threshold of carbon being released into the atmosphere. And so this is a great way, I think, to have industries working not only collectively, but working for the greater good of society to, again, try and draw down and reduce the amount of emissions. The second is the energy sector. Of course, we need to get away from our dependency on fossil fuels and transition to more renewables. Things like solar, wind, geothermal, hydroelectric, and nuclear. I think all of these technologies are not only becoming less expensive and more technologically advanced, but there's a lot of hope in these new technological solutions to generate enough energy for the world to sustain itself on. However, that obviously requires radical change, a change of a mindset, both on the consumers, the government, and the industry level. But I think that obviously there's a lot of hope in radically transforming our energy system away from fossil fuels that, again, are emitting an excessive amount of carbon into the atmosphere. In tandem with this, then, is also the transportation sector, where if we can, again, start to embrace some of these new technologies like hydrogen fuel cell cars and electric vehicles where the electricity can then be developed from renewable ways, I think, again, we can remove our consumer dependence on fuels and try and radicalize the transportation system as well towards more renewable energies as well. And and I've also seen in recent weeks vast advancement in airplane technology that runs on solar power. How cool would that be? You just have big solar panels out on the wings and we can fly these planes based on solar. I think right now the biggest plane to be able to run on solar is about the size of a Cessna, five to seven passengers. But I think that technology is coming and I think that can be a really radical way to move towards more greener forms of transportation. The next four solution strategies I wanna get into are more surrounding daily action. The first is to eat locally. In other words, to eat seasonally. So often, food is traveling so far to get to our plates. 
because we want to be able to eat delicious fruits year-round. And so they're being shipped from South America, where it's summer there, winter here in the Northern Hemisphere, to be able to eat peaches in December and cherries in January. This has a huge carbon footprint because, again, all that transportation, all that mileage. On average, your plate of food travels about 1,500 miles to get to your plate. Not only does this have a huge carbon footprint, but the nutrient density of your food degrades as it travels away from the farm to your plate. The more local you eat, the more nutrients that'll be in your food and the less carbon it requires to get to you. So eating local is a great way. Eating less meat is another really big hot topic and I think I'll get into a full other episode about veganism and why I think we should be eating less meat. But right off the bat, I think it's easy to understand that meat is heavily resource intensive. Red meat in particular is extremely resource intensive. And there was a study that came out in 2014 that showed that beef requires more land, water, nitrogen, and carbon than all other meat sectors combined, including pork, chicken, turkey, fish, eggs, etc. So to put things in perspective, I just want to give you some numbers on how resource-intensive beef is. Different animals have different conversion efficiencies, meaning it requires different amounts of food to generate different amounts of meat on the animal. For example, beef requires 20 kilograms of feed to generate one kilogram of beef. Pigs require 7.3 kilograms to generate one kilogram of pork. Eggs require 4.5 to create one kilogram of eggs. And chicken meat is the lowest here at 2.8 kilograms to generate one kilogram of meat. And so chickens have a conversion ratio of about 3 to 1, whereas beef require 20 to 1. So you can see just, again, the magnitude of how much resource a cow needs to pack on meat. And again, to get all that feed requires so much land, so much water, so much fertilizer, right, to grow the corn, to grow the grass, whatever it may be that you're feeding the cows. And then all that gets converted into meat. But again, it gets converted at a very inefficient way. But I will say, I'm not saying don't eat meat. I'm not saying animals suck. I believe animals are so integral to the sustainability of agriculture and we have some amazing podcasts coming up to talk more about this and my philosophy and others philosophy about why animal integration is huge also these sectors can then be also leveraged for energy generation for example we're going to have jeff bishop on the show next week talking about how he's working with dairy farmers to convert all the methane that's coming off of these farms and convert that methane into energy So there are great novel solutions and technologies and also grassroots, old school, sustainable agricultural mentalities that can leverage animals to actually promote about a sustainable environment and a sustainable way to produce meat. But more often than not, especially here in the United States, it's not being done in a ethical, humane or environmentally friendly way. So there needs to be radical transformations before we can start consuming the amount of meat that we do. And so therefore, I'm suggesting moderation, especially if you're going to reduce one thing, just try to reduce your meat intake. And if you are going to eat meat, eat lighter color meats. And if you are going to eat red meat, then try and eat grass-fed. And I'll get into why all that stuff matters in future episodes, but just take it at my word for now. The last food-related 
solution category that I'll get into just briefly here is to support sustainable agriculture. And what I mean by that is support local agriculture, support farmers markets. So sign up for a community supported agricultural program where you can support farmers to practice a more sustainable way by things that have sustainability certifications on it like their organic label or the rainforest alliance or fair trade support these brands that are pushing this type of mentality and allowing their producers to shift into that style of production and now the last solution category which i recognize fully up front is a very touchy subject and people don't like to be told what to do even just the utterance of eating less meat is um you know received with a lot of stubbornness because people don't want to change their daily actions but the reality is is that oftentimes it's quite required even if it is just in small ways like just eating less meat but people don't necessarily want to hear that and what I'm about to say now I think a lot of people probably don't want to hear either because I'm suggesting that we need to tailor and curb our population and I think that we need to have fewer children for example if two people come together they have a child they have one kid the population already started to be cut in 50 percent if you have two kids you're sustaining the population and anything above two kids now starts to grow the population and when you grow the population you have a bigger impact on the environment our population has already been growing exponentially over the past several decades and we're approaching 9 10 billion quite quickly and there's only a finite amount of resources on the planet to support so many people and so a report just came out in 2018 that suggested that in order to reduce your carbon footprint, the biggest way to do so is to have one fewer child. I'll say it again. Have one less kid. It's not suggesting not to have kids at all, but it's saying that if you desire to change your habits and you desire to live in a more sustainable way and you want to reduce your carbon footprint, the best way to do so is to have one fewer kid because humans have a vast impact on the environment. And as a result, by you generating less offspring you have a reduced embedded carbon footprint because you now take on the carbon footprint of your kids and so again just to illustrate this and bring you guys some numbers i want to just highlight the differences here between having one fewer child and doing other types of green acts in your life so again this is data coming from the study and i'll post the study up in the show notes if you guys want to check it out but having one fewer child saves you 59 tons of carbon dioxide per person per year you can live without a car for a year and only save 2.4 tons of carbon so living without a car 2.4 having one fewer child 58.6 okay let's look at a couple other ones Avoiding one round-trip transatlantic flight, 1.6 tons per carbon per year. Switching to an electric car, 1.15. Eating a plant-based diet, 0.82 tons of carbon per year that you're saving. Again, this is all in respect to 58.6 tons of carbon by having one fewer kid. So again, if you are looking for the easiest, simplest way to reduce your carbon footprint in your lifetime, having one fewer child is the way to go, and that's what this paper is suggesting. Now, again, I understand that this is a bit radical and maybe a bit touchy for some people, but I think it's easy for us to conceptualize that as the population grows, so does our footprint and impact on the environment, and as a result, the environment gets more strained. 
So by having less people on the planet, we can help reduce the footprint and live within the means and boundaries and limitations of our planet. You know, the environmental movement was birthed in the 1960s in conjunction with us going to space because I think for the first time when the astronauts were on the moon and looking back on the planet, we were able to actually see the finite nature of the earth. The earth is not flat and endless and goes on and on and on. It is a sphere. It has limits. It has boundaries. And at a certain point, it can only handle and supply so much. And so I think it's healthy for us to live with this idea that the planet is finite. And as a result, we need to live accordingly so that we can not only have a planet to give to our offspring, but also take care of the planet now so we can help people who are in dire situations, who are fleeing their countries because they've had drought for 10 years and they can't grow food and now they have to escape to another place to be able to eat or to find jobs or their nation is going underwater. We need to help people immediately and presently and we need to steward the planet so that we can also give it to our kids and grandkids. And so... I'll conclude with that just to reiterate these six pieces of evidence that we are seeing today that illustrate climate change's occurrence are air temperature rising, ocean temperature rising, ocean acidification, the sea level rising, melting glaciers and ice sheets, and the extreme weather events. Seven solutions. Leveraging and transforming our economy, energy, and transportation sectors while also making daily lifestyle changes to eat locally, eat less meat, support sustainable agriculture, and again, to have fewer children. And with that, I will conclude. I hope this has been informative for you and given you something to think about and have good conversations with your loved ones. I'll see you here next time. Thanks for tuning in.